Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. We're looking this morning at Samson. Samson is undoubtedly one of the most fun and colorful characters in the Bible. He is a Sunday school favorite, uh, especially among boys, uh, for very obvious reasons. Uh, when it comes to Samson, most of the attention focuses on the events later in Samson's life, the back and forth with Delilah over the source of his strength, his capture by the Philistines who make him a slave and then blind him. And of course, finally, his heroic death when he gives himself sacrificially, defeating the Philistines and helping to deliver the nation of Israel from oppression. And we're going to get to those events. We're going to see how they fit in. But today, we really want to focus mainly on Samson's birth recorded for us in the chapter we read, Judges chapter 13. It's getting close to Christmas when we focus on the birth of Jesus but Samson's birth story is in many ways a preview, a preview of things to come, a preview of Jesus' birth story. Samson, you could say, paves the way as he points ahead to Jesus, who might be regarded as the greater Samson in many ways. We'll see that again as we go. So then what better way to prepare for Christmas than to look at the nativity of Samson? Samson's story is set in the era of the Judges, which is a very up-and-down period for Israel. This is before they had a king, and uh, they're under the rule of Judges. Whenever Israel would slide into idolatry, which was often during this period of history, uh, God would raise up one of the surrounding nations to come in and invade them, to overtake them, to conquer them, to oppress them. And after a while, things would get so bad, Israel would get the message and cry out to God in repentance. And then God would raise up a judge who would act as a deliverer for the nation, passing judgment in their favor and against their oppressors. Well, here we are told the story of Samson. And we're told that Samson's story coincides with the start of a 40-year period of enslavement to the Philistines. Uh, our story is set in Zorah, an area uh, that originally was given to the tribe of Dan. Uh, we meet a man named Manoah right off the bat. That name Manoah means rest or perhaps peace. But it's an ironic name at this point because there is no rest in the land. There is no peace in the land because the Philistines are ruling over them. And so the Israelites are at war, but it's a war they're losing. They are under pagan rule. They're under Philistine rule. The land that the Israelites had conquered, the land that they had conquered and then claimed as their own, has now been conquered by the Philistines. Well, that's our setting uh, as we meet Manoah, uh, who is a Danite. What about his wife? What is his wife's name? She actually doesn't have a name in the story. Isn't that interesting? Is that because women are not important so they can just go nameless? Well, no, that's not it. Uh, that's not it at all. She is very important to this story. In fact, uh, if you pay close attention, you'll see she's actually more spiritually perceptive than her husband is in many ways. And of course, there are numerous other women in Scripture and even in the book of Judges who are named. So that's not it. There must be something else going on here. Why is she simply called the woman throughout the story? What's going on here? 
Well, remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana and they run out of wine and Mary comes to tell Jesus about this and he says back to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And it troubles readers sometimes because they want to know why does Jesus refer to his mother as woman? Uh, that sounds somewhat uh, rude or disrespectful. What's going on? Well, actually, Jesus is alluding to her identity. When the woman is talked about in Scripture, who is it? It is the woman of Genesis 3.15. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, what happens? God promises to send a, a Redeemer. And what shape, what form does that promise take? God promises to send the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. A woman will bring the seed, the promised Messiah, the king, the conqueror, the redeemer into the world. Well, Manoah's wife is simply called the woman here because she will give birth to a seed who will begin to crush the head of the Philistine serpent. She is the woman of Genesis 3.15 at this stage in Israel's history. At this stage in history, she's the woman of Genesis 3.15. And her son, at this stage in history, will be the seed of the woman who begins to crush the skull of the serpent. In fact, it's interesting when uh, Mary is told she's going to give birth miraculously because she is still a virgin, an angel comes to her. And again, we see something of that happening here. Uh, with Manoah's wife, with the woman. When that angel comes to Mary to announce that she will give birth miraculously to a son, that is known as the Annunciation of Jesus. The angel comes to announce that she will have a son, that she will give birth to the Messiah. We see the same kind of thing happen with Abraham. Same with Abraham. He's very aged and his barren wife Sarah is visited by an angel the angel of the Lord, and she's told that she will give birth to a child miraculously. That could be called the Annunciation of Isaac. An angel makes the announcement. And here you have the same thing. Here the angel of the Lord appears to the woman, to Manoah's wife, to announce another miraculous birth. This is the Annunciation of Samson. So you see how the pieces of this story are starting to come together. In Scripture, we see this happen again and again. Barren women giving birth is always the sign that something momentous is about to happen, that God is about to do something momentous. The birth of this child really means the new birth of the nation. It means something radical, something amazing is going to happen. God is about to act in a great way for His people. A miraculous birth points to a momentous deliverance. Again and again in Scripture. That thread in Scripture, of course, comes to its conclusion when the ultimate barren womb, the womb of a virgin, is made fruitful with the ultimate promised seed, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again, what you see in Scripture is the sons born of these barren women go on to do great things. Everyone before Jesus anticipating Him and then Jesus Himself fulfilling all those who came before Him. And that's what you see in this story. So verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, there's that language again, and said to her, indeed now you are who are barren and have no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. 
And then the angel says something very interesting. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or beer. Now why is that? Is this sort of like the angel playing the part of the Surgeon General warning pregnant moms about fetal alcohol syndrome or something like that? No, it's not that. Uh, That's obviously not what's going on here. She's also told to not eat anything unclean. And then she's told that her son is never to have his hair cut. No razor shall come upon his head. Well, why? What is this? What is going on? Well, it's clear this child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. What is a Nazarite? We saw this with Samuel uh, in 1 Samuel a couple weeks ago. A Nazarite is a man on a mission. We're all supposed to be on a mission from God, obviously. But a Nazarite has a special mission. He's consecrated to serve God in a certain kind of way. Most of the time, Nazarite vows were temporary. And while a man was under a Nazarite vow, he could not drink wine or cut his hair for the duration of his vow. Why? Well, because wine is used to celebrate mission accomplished. You drink wine at the end, after the job is done, at the end of the day or the end of the battle, when the work is finished. Then you can celebrate with a glass of wine. Uh, And that's the idea behind the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite can't cut his hair because his head is dedicated to God. For those who took a temporary Nazarite vow, they would cut their hair at the end of the vow and then offer that hair to God. They're offering their heads to God, saying, we belong to you, we're yours. Well, Samson, like Samuel, is going to be a Nazarite for life. He will be God's special warrior. He will be on a mission from God. Now, one side note here, the woman is told she can't drink wine while she's pregnant. What does that tell you? Well, one thing it tells you is that the ancient Hebrews knew that babies in the womb drew sustenance from their mothers. Uh, In this case, Samson's mother has to abide by that part of the Nazarite vow herself while Samson is in her womb. If she drinks wine, he'll be drinking wine through her. And that in turn tells you something else. Uh, Today, pregnant women who eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper are practicing pedo communion. Their babies are receiving bread and wine even in the womb, feeding upon Jesus even as she does. I don't know why some churches want to excommunicate children as soon as they are born. does not make a lot of sense to me. Uh, when these children have been receiving the bread and the wine for nine months in the mother's womb every Sunday, why change that suddenly when the child is born? Why not continue to include the child in the sacramental life of the church? Just a thought. Just something that I think they're uh, hinted at, uh, suggested uh, in this story. It's a discussion for another day, but I think it's interesting. The angel goes on to say to her uh, that her son will be a Nazarite warrior who will begin to deliver Israel. He's going to begin to deliver Israel. He won't complete it, but he will begin the deliverance of Israel. Well, verse 6, the woman, and again, note that language, the woman, uh, goes to tell her husband. She says, a man of God came to me with a face like an angel of God. And she relays to Manoah all that she's been told, including that the boy will be a Nazarite to the day of his death. She adds that little detail in, which I think suggests she understood when the angel said he will begin to deliver Israel, that whatever deliverance he's going to bring will come through his death. He'll have to give himself, he'll have to give his life in order to deliver Israel. This deliverance will come through the death of her son. It's a bit of foreshadowing. 
And so in verse 8, Manoah prays that the Lord would visit them again to teach them what to do for this child who is to be born. Like every parent-to-be, Manoah knows he needs all the help he can get. So he's hoping for another visitation. But again, this is interesting. Think about uh, what happened with Jesus. The angel visited Mary to tell her about the son who was to be born. And then an angel visited Joseph to reveal to him the truth about this child. So a visit for the woman and a visit for the man. Two visits, two witnesses. The matter is established. So it is here in the book of Judges. The woman gets a visit and we're going to see the man gets a visit as well. There is a second visitation. God listened to Manoah's prayer and sent his angel again. Now, the angel comes again first to the woman, uh, but she runs to get her husband Manoah. And the angel again repeats his instructions that uh, the child will be a Nazarite. He will live his whole life under a Nazarite vow. And so now Manoah hears this for himself. And then Manoah does something interesting. Like Abraham before him, uh, when Abraham received a visit uh, of an angel of the Lord. Uh, Abraham sought to show hospitality. Actually, there's two angels in Abraham's case. So Manoah here seeks to show hospitality to the angel of the Lord as well. Uh, he says in verse 15, let us prepare a young goat for you. But it's not time for that. It's not time. There's not yet peace between this angel of the Lord and the people. So it's not time for a peace offering for a meal they can share together. So the angel says, I will not eat your food. Instead, he tells Manoah to make an ascension offering. Your translation may say a whole birth offering or something like that, but it's really the going up offering. It is the ascension offering. Uh, the angel tells Manoah, make an ascension offering to the Lord. Manoah asks, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? Uh, the angel refuses to give his name. Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Perhaps the name of the angel is too wonderful to comprehend. Or perhaps the angel will only reveal himself through the wonders that he does. Or perhaps we should connect this with a later prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, where the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah, the son, the child who will be born, says his name shall be called Wonderful. Perhaps that's a connection here. Perhaps this means that when their son Samson starts to do wonderful things, amazing things, they're to know that's a sign that the Lord is with their son because Samson's going to be a wonder worker of sorts. Whatever the case, the angel of the Lord does not give his name. He simply says it's too wonderful. So Manoah proceeds to do what the angel has commanded and he prepares the ascension offering. He puts it on a rock that will serve as an altar. But then something wonderful happens. As the flame began to go up from the offering, the angel of the Lord steps into the fire and ascends in the flames up to heaven. Now what is this? If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, I think we have to understand that this angel of the Lord is really some kind of pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnational manifestation of Jesus Christ. And it's an appearance of God's Son. He comes in the form of an angel. 
and I think this happens a lot in the Old Testament. There are debates about who the angel of the Lord is when he comes because in some ways he seems to be identified with God and yet also distinguished from God. And certainly not every appearance of an angel is, is, is this in the Old Testament. But here it seems this is a pre-incarnational appearance of Jesus. Why does he step into the flames of the sacrifice? Well, again, it's to show Manoah and his wife that ultimately he will become the sacrifice. He will be the sacrifice. This is a picture of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He steps into the flames. And it's a sign that ultimately His sacrifice will bring rest and peace. He will ascend to heaven on our behalf and of course ultimately take us there with Him. His sacrifice will bring deliverance. His sacrifice will reconcile God and His people. Whatever this son of theirs, Samson, accomplishes, it will be because of and on the basis of this sacrifice offered here. You see, it's not really the blood of bulls and goats that that God is satisfied with, that God is pleased with. It's going to be the blood of His Son, ultimately. And you get a preview of that here as the angel of the Lord steps into the flames and ascends. He identifies Himself with the sacrifice as it goes up to heaven. The angel steps into the flame to become the sacrifice. Well, Manoah and his wife see this and all they can do is fall down. Manoah knows they have experienced some kind of theophany, uh, some kind of appearance of God. They have seen God in some sense. And so Manoah draws the conclusion, surely we must die. He knows he's seen the Lord, but he doesn't understand what the Lord stepping into the flames really means. And his wife, I think, being more perceptive than he is at this point, points out that if the Lord had just wanted to kill them, he would have done it already. That can't be what this is. If the Lord had wanted to kill them, there would not have been an offering. He would not have appeared. He would not have told them these things. In other words, if the Lord had simply wanted to kill Manoah and his wife, he wouldn't have promised them a son and therefore a future. He would not have promised this deliverer who would come through them. And so then the story jumps ahead about nine months. Uh, Verse 24, we find that the woman, there's that language again, the woman uh, gives birth. She has a son and she calls his name Samson. And we are told that as the child grew, the Lord blessed him and the Spirit of God came upon him. The same thing is said about Samson's contemporary Samuel. Uh, in First Samuel, that he grew and the Lord was with him. And of course, something similar is said about the boy Jesus in Luke chapter 2, that he grew uh, as the Lord blessed him. He grew under the Lord's blessing. Now, Samson will go on to have a great career as a judge of Israel. And that's recorded in the next several chapters. Yes, he will fail with Delilah, just as Abraham failed with Hagar and David failed with Bathsheba. He was far from perfect. But he also did many great and mighty deeds for the Lord on behalf of Israel and against the Philistines. He was anointed with God's Spirit. The Spirit came upon him so he could fulfill the prophecy made over him that he would begin to deliver Israel so he could fulfill his Nazarite mission. Through his ministry, he is constantly showing both his strength and his smarts. In this way, he's the ideal man, the model man who combines strength with wisdom. He shows off his strength and his smarts. He's got this amazing strength, and so he can kill a lion with his bare hands in the wilderness. 
on another occasion, he's somehow able to capture 300 foxes and tie them together tail to tail and then put torches in their tails somehow and turn them loose in the Philistines' crops to burn up all their crops. Okay, don't ask me how he did it. It's a wonder. It's a wonder. But Samson has the, the, the strength and the smarts to do this kind of thing. Of course, he's most famous for his strength. But you see, he's got great wisdom as well. Great wisdom so he can tell riddles. So he can write songs. So he can constantly outwit his enemies. He's got brains and brawn. His whole career, he is dealing with the Philistines. In fact, we've read Judges chapter 13. In the very next chapter, Judges 14, he graciously offers marriage. He makes a gracious marriage proposal to a Philistine woman. And I don't think we're to see this as a sin. I think we're to see it as an evangelistic move on Samson's part. A very gracious and generous move on his part. Just as Moses married a Cushite woman and just as Boaz married a Moabitess, so Samson offers to marry a Philistine. We're told that the Spirit led him to do this. And it was really an opportunity for her and other Philistines to come under his protection, to shift their loyalty to him and to his God. And what happens, she ends up double-crossing him, and so he makes the Philistines pay. On another occasion, his own people reject him, even though he is clearly the deliverer sent by God, he's clearly the one God has sent to them, they simply don't trust God to work through Samson. Uh, They simply don't trust him. And so they betray Samson into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson goes along with it, allowing himself to be bound and delivered to the enemy. But it's all part of his plan. And he ends up defeating the Philistines, killing a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. Again, what a wonder he does. And it's interesting, at the end of chapter 15, after he uh, kills the uh, after he kills the thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, uh, he is near death. Uh, he's so exhausted. And God refreshes him with water from a rock. Reminiscent of what God did for Israel through Moses. He's a one-man wrecking crew. A one-man army fighting on behalf of his nation. And here he even undergoes a kind of death and resurrection. He's near death, having spent himself killing these thousand Philistines, but then God revives him with this living water from a rock. However, uh, as we know sadly, later on he does compromise himself. And he gives away the the secret to his strength. And he is captured by the Philistines. And he is blinded and he's put to work uh, grinding out meal in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. And they make a mockery of him. They bring him out uh, every now and then to provide amusement for onlookers. The one who had provided so much amusement with his riddles and his foxes tied together and all these other things he did now has become a sort of court jester in Dagon's temple. The one who made a mockery of the Philistines is now being made a mockery by them. But as it turns out, Samson would get the last laugh. In Judges chapter 16, we find how he begins to deliver Israel. Everything else he's done up to this point has really just been preliminary. They call Samson out. And because he's been blinded, he has to ask for help as he positions himself between the pillars of the temple with one arm on each 
temple. At this point, we're told the temple is full of all the great people of Philistine society. Uh, their leading men and women are there, 3,000 of them in all. These are the heads of Philistine society. The head of the Philistine culture is gathered together at the temple. And Solomon is brought out supposedly again so they can make fun of him, so they can mock him, so they can jeer at him. He's let out. He put one hand on one pillar and another hand on another pillar. And he cries out a prayer of repentance and faith. O Lord God, remember me and strengthen me, O God, one last time that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines. And Samson takes hold of those pillars of the temple that support the whole structure. One pillar on his right, one pillar on his left. And he says, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushes the pillars over and the temple collapses. The temple falls in on itself and all the lords of the Philistines are destroyed. And so we're told at the end of Judges 16, Samson killed more in his death than he did in his life. In his death, he crushed the head of Philistine society. He was the seed of the woman for that generation of Israelites. Now, what does it all mean? Well, again, consider the shape of the Samson story. I've hinted at this, but I want to spell it out for you. His birth is announced by an angel. First to the woman who is barren, but who will give birth to the seed. And then to his father by an angel. Two visitations, one for mom, one for dad. We're told after his birth, he grew as the Lord blessed him. We're told he was anointed by God's spirit. He becomes a Messiah, a Christ figure. He can defeat after he's, after he's anointed with God's Spirit. He defeats a prowling lion in the wilderness. He offers salvation to, a, uh, to, a, to the Gentiles, specifically to a Gentile woman who has the opportunity to become his bride and come under his protection and his salvation. He's betrayed by his own for silver pieces, for money. And he's handed over to the enemy. After being captured by the enemy, he's mocked and humiliated and blinded. But then with outstretched arms, he offers himself sacrificially to deliver his people. He died a cruciform death to rescue his own people, single-handedly delivering them. His entire life and ministry are a preview of what is to come. A preview of coming attractions. A giant pointer to the coming of Christ. The shape of Samson's life and death points to the shape of Jesus' life and death. Now let me see if I can draw all this together put a nice Christmas bow on it for you. Before Samson was born, the angel of the Lord said he would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. In terms of this period of Israel's history, Samuel is Samson's counterpart. Uh, he's a Nazarite as well, born at the same time, it seems, judging Israel at the same time. And shortly after Samson's death had greatly weakened the Philistines in Judges chapter 16, Samuel leads the Israelites to victory in the battle of Mizpah in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so the Lord gives them a great and decisive and final victory over the Philistines. They will never be under Philistine oppression again. 
Samson and Samuel form a one-two punch to bring an end to Philistine oppression over Israel and to restore them to the land. But in terms of the bigger picture, all Samson and Samuel could ever do is begin the work of deliverance. It would take the arrival of the greater Samson, the Lord Jesus, to complete the deliverance. Samson in his death did not cry out, it is finished. Because it was not. There's only one who in his death could cry out, it is finished. And that's Jesus. He doesn't just begin the deliverance of His people. He completes it. He finishes it. What Samson could only begin, Jesus will complete. And Jesus not only delivers us from the Philistines, or I should say He doesn't deliver us from the Philistines, He actually delivers us from a much greater enemy. It's a much greater deliverance. It's not a deliverance from the Philistines. It's the deliverance we really need. It's deliverance from sin and Satan and death. Jesus came to deliver us from these enemies. Jesus came to stretch out His arms in order to bring down Satan's house, crushing him in the process, destroying the head of the satanic kingdom. Jesus came to stretch out His arms and in doing so, to cast Satan down from heaven to destroy the devil and all his works. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus is all about. That's what Jesus came to do. Don't sentimentalize this season of the church here. The culture, and even much of the church, drapes the Christmas season in nostalgia and sentimentality. But that's not what it's about. Christmas is about war. Christmas is war. Christmas is about God's declaration of war against the satanic kingdom. Against the principalities and powers. Against the kingdom of darkness. Against sin and death. Christmas is about God coming to claim victory for His people. It's about God coming to complete the deliverance of His people. See, Advent is all about God's promise of victory. A promise not only given in words, like Genesis 3.15, a verbal promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Advent's also about all those other ways in which God made promises. God made promises through persons and events as well that served as foreshadowings of what would come. Promises acted out. Promises embodied in persons and events like Samuel, his miraculous birth and his sacrificial death. That's a promise. Those events form a promise. Christmas then is about God fulfilling those promises. It's about God making good on His promises. It's about God's purposes and God's promises coming to fulfillment in the Word made flesh. The greater Samson, the seed of the woman, born miraculously of a virgin and stretching out His arms in sacrificial death to give us the victory. To bring the house of Satan down. And so when you say Merry Christmas this season, that's what you need to mean. That's what I want you to mean. When you say Merry Christmas, you are saying Christ has won the victory. That's what we're celebrating this season. The one God sent, the God-man, the seed of the woman, born of a woman, fully God, fully man, coming to rescue us. Not just to begin our deliverance, but to complete it, to cry out, it is finished. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the greater Samson. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, His miraculous birth, the wonders He did throughout His ministry, and ultimately His sacrificial death. Father, we thank You through His death. He has delivered us from all our enemies, from sin, Satan, and death. May we celebrate that victory through the One You sent, the One born into our world. May we celebrate that this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.